can have a seat. Over the month of December, we as a church have been thinking about the fact that hopes and fears often are associated with the most important moments in our lives. Whether we're talking about the birth of a child or a wedding or a new job or a graduation or a retirement or whatever's going on in our lives, it's really important there are hopes that are associated with that. We're thinking about what God could do, what could be done, and there are fears of just what might happen. And sometimes we know some of those things are going to happen. And certainly as we think about the Christmas story tonight and the very first Christmas, there were hopes and fears associated with that event. There were hopes and fears that that God was at work, that the Lord was on the move, that he was doing something, that he was bringing the needed salvation for Israel and really for the world. And there was the fear that maybe they were wrong about all this or maybe they had misinterpreted something. Or maybe this baby that was going to be born was not who they thought he was. And so there was this challenge of dealing with those hopes and fears as they they grappled with what was happening that night. And it really is just part of life. And tonight as we come to this, this night service, this Christmas Eve night service, I want us to think about one more component of this, one more part of what it means to have hopes and fears, and it's really all wrapped up in what I might call our significance. I mean, one of the questions that we sometimes ask ourselves is, does the life I'm living count for anything, right? Does what I'm doing, does it, does it really matter? In the grand scheme of things, is, is my existence, does it does it amount to something that really matters to other people? You know, not long ago, the, the people of really the whole world marked an era that came to an end, right? We marked the death of Queen Elizabeth II of the United Kingdom. Hers was the most recognizable face in all the world. And in fact, uh, there were 39 or 29 billion coins still in circulation with her face on those coins and 4.5 billion banknotes with her face on them. That was only in the UK. Doesn't count the Commonwealth, the Canada, Australia, that also has her face on their money, okay? So billions of pictures of her circulating throughout the world. And, and, and she passed. And one of the things that I thought of was, how's history going to remember her, right? And, and, and her legacy is going to go on for a long time. And people are going to be talking about her for hundreds maybe even a thousand years, maybe more than that, historians are going to discuss what happened during her reign. And I compare that, I compare that to most of us, who in a hundred years will probably largely be forgotten, right? I mean, maybe there will be some grandchildren, probably great-grandchildren, even great-great-grandchildren that might, might know our names, There might be a couple of stories that circulate. I'm thinking about how my great-grandkids are going to talk about how wonderful I was and, you know, things like that, right? That's what we hope, but will largely be forgotten. And that's really sort of my holly jolly thought for you this Christmas Eve night, right? But that's not where we stop, is it? But we really might ask that question. In 100 years, is it really going to matter? And, and if I'm going to be forgotten that quickly, am I important at all? 
I think there's a biblical answer to that, and I think it's a question that people have been dealing with for a very long time. And to get at that tonight, I'd like to turn back to Luke chapter 1, which really tells the the, the pre-story of Jesus being born in Luke chapter 2. But in Luke chapter 1, we have an angel that comes to a young girl, uh, probably a teenager. She's engaged to be married to a man named Joseph. Those engagements began very early and lasted about a year. And the angel had news for her. Now, here's the thing. The angel could have spoken to anyone that night, right? I mean, God could have chosen anyone. But he didn't choose someone from Herod's household, the king. He didn't choose someone from the household of the most powerful man on the face of the earth, Caesar Augustus. The angel was sent to to this young woman in a little town called Nazareth that probably no one really outside her town even knew about, and certainly we would never have heard of if this hadn't happened. Luke chapter 1, verse 30. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Now, my guess is when that angel stopped talking, Mary had some questions. And in fact, we have a couple questions because her first question is, like, that would be impossible, right? Because I haven't done what it takes to be pregnant, all right? So what's going on here? And the angel says, of course, this is a miracle. But my guess is she had other questions as well. This business of reigning on his father David's throne and his kingdom will last forever. It will never end. What are we, what are we even talking about? You talk about hopes and fears. What does this mean? And Mary is left to, to contemplate all that, to think through that, to ponder over it for months. And as a part of her pondering during those months of waiting, Mary decided to go visit her her cousin Elizabeth, who was also pregnant, whose husband had also been visited by an angel and told sort of in their at least middle age and probably older age that they were going to have a son as well. They'd been waiting for years and it hadn't happened. And finally, they're going to have a son and they're to call him John. And Mary goes and visits her cousin Elizabeth, who is also pregnant. And when she walks in, Elizabeth's baby jumps in her womb at the presence of Mary and her child. And when this happens, Elizabeth has a song to sing. And we find it in verse 42. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you, and she's talking about Mary, among women. And blessed is the child, Jesus, you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. God is on the move. Hopes and fears are everywhere in these moments. Now what strikes me is that in the next moments, Mary has a song as well. This young woman again, who would be unknown to most everyone on the face of the earth. And if we hadn't known her because of this story, man, we we wouldn't have known of her. 
a woman who was part of a group of people that in the ancient world were called the Anawim. And what does that mean? That means the poor, but it, it had sort of a side meaning. And really what it was all about was the poor, righteous people. We might call them the salt of the earth, right? These are the people who, who didn't have a lot, but they took their obedience to God really seriously. They didn't, they didn't store up riches for themselves, but they spent their lives doing what they should do, doing what was right, doing what God had called them to be and to do. Most people who were on a weem, we will never know their names. But Mary and Joseph, we do. And we have little hints that tell us that they are part of this group. When they went to the temple after Jesus was born to offer the sacrifice that was required, you had a choice. A lamb and a dove or two doves. Guess which one was for the poor people. Guess which one they offered. That's right, two doves. We know they didn't have a lot. And yet, it's, it's this young woman that God chose to bear his son. And as she's been pondering all that and hearing then Elizabeth's response to what's just happened, she too has a song to sing, and we call it the Magnificat, and we find it in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 46. I'm going to read the whole thing, which is a little long, but then we're going to take it apart and just let these words sort of wash over you. Hear what she has to say. And in the words of New Testament scholar Scott McKnight, he says, what kind of girl sings this kind of song? Think about that. Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arms. He has scattered those who are proud in, the, in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. It's a mouthful, and it brings up some questions, so let's take it apart, okay? Hear what Mary has to say in those first few verses. She opens with praise, because she recognizes that God is working in her. My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. She's been told that the name of her baby is Jesus, and guess what Jesus means? Savior. She's already associating these things together. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. She knows she's part of this righteous poor. She knows who she is, and she knows it would have been easy for God to ignore her and to have chosen someone with wealth, notoriety, power, someone who would have been known by everyone, but he has chosen her. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, and they have, right? We do even tonight. For the mighty one, for God, has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Now, as we go to the end of that verse, the, the song takes a turn. Because what she's been doing is talking about how mighty God is and how he has noticed her, and because of that, she wants to praise God. But in verse 50, it changes a little bit. His mercy extends to those who fear him. And what did that mean? That meant the people who obey God. From generation to generation, he has performed mighty deeds. This is a powerful God. And then this, 
He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. The people who think they're something, the people who are important, God breaks them up. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and lifted up the hungry, the humble, the powerful, the people who are in control, the people who direct affairs. Mary says God has something in store for them, and he's filled the hungry and sent the rich away empty. Now, here's the thing. We're gathered for Christmas Eve, and we want to talk about little towns of Bethlehem and quiet nights and shepherds and sheep, and, and Mary wants to talk about God bringing down the rich and the powerful. What kind of girl sings this kind of song? The mother of Jesus, who understood what his kingdom and his mission were all about. This girl who understood that even at this point before Jesus is born, that God's kingdom was not about the people who are powerful, the people the world notices, but it was all about the people the world ignores, the people no one notices, the people that the world doesn't care about. That's who it's about. The people like her and her husband Joseph. And the people like, well what everyone thought her son would be. That's what it's about. And we finish the song. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. God had made promises to his people, and now he's keeping his promises. So what does she say to us? This girl who has this message about understanding what real wealth is and what real power is all about, what does she say to us? Well, I think it's this. Great or small, you matter to God. And so if you're wondering if 50 or 100 or 150 years from now, your name will be forgotten, doesn't matter to God. If you're wondering if what you're doing is going to count for something big, that doesn't determine your importance to the one who created you. Great or small, you matter to God. And that's what the story of Jesus is all about because the story of Jesus never can, we can never separate the birth story from the death story. They are inevitably bound together so that the birth is all about the death. And, and what that means is that God sent his son to deal with our sin problem, that, that we've got this issue that we keep doing stuff wrong, and because of that, we've separated ourselves from God. And the answer to that separation is always and only going to be Jesus. You see, God sent his son. He sent him to be with us, to show us what life is all about, he sent him to die on the cross, to be buried, and to be raised from the dead. And the message there is that every single human being, great or small, matters to God. And so whoever you are, 
wherever you've been, whatever you've done, whatever you've accomplished, whatever you've failed to accomplish, you matter. Your significance is bound up in the fact that God loves you and you specifically. And that's the good news that I want you to carry with you this Christmas Eve. Great or small, you matter to God. When we come together as a church for worship every Sunday, we share in communion. And one of the things that communion is about is that fact that every single one of us matters to God. We celebrate the fact that God came and he was among us. God is with us. That's what Emmanuel means, right? He is among us and he died for us. And the bread and the cup symbolize for us Jesus' body and his blood that was living among us and then died on a cross. It is a gift that we have been offered. And so in just a minute, I'm going to pray over our communion time, and I invite you to come. And the way we're going to do this is, if you will, if you'll come down the center aisles and take the bag. It has your communion. It has the candle. You can go back to your seat and take communion sort of in your own time. Have a little prayer time to yourself. Talk to God. Talk to your family. It's okay. Okay? And then hold the candle. We'll sing Silent Night in a few minutes, and I'll show you when it's time to light your candle. But if you'll just hold those for a little later. After you've taken communion, you can seal that back up in the bag where there's a garbage can out there. But, but for us at this moment, what I want us to think about is the fact that this season, it's all about the birth of Jesus, should remind us every time we come to this point on the calendar, that we matter to God. Let's pray together. God, if we're honest, most of us, sometime or another, have to say that we feel pretty insignificant. Like, what difference does it really make whether I'm here or not? God, thank you for showing us through Jesus that we were, we were worth you coming being among us and even dying for us so that we could be reunited with you. God bless us as we take communion tonight. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said,